You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardenbaptist.org. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're not opening to Ecclesiastes. We are in 1 Peter, so let's open to 1 Peter chapter one. We're gonna start at the end of a paragraph because Corey did not have time last week to get all the way through the paragraph. So we're gonna be beginning in verse eight and we're gonna read through verse 12 in just a second. I have a question for you. Have any of you ever missed an assembling of the church You had a good reason maybe to miss, but you had to miss. And then after you missed it, you met someone who had been in the service you missed. And it was like God showed up and something amazing happened. And while they were talking to you about what happened in the service, you were really feeling bad you had to miss it. That ever happened to anybody? Yes, 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 yes. Can you imagine... It's Resurrection Sunday. It's evening. The church is meeting behind closed doors. They've locked the doors because a few days earlier they saw their leader crucified. They're now afraid of the Jews. They might come after them. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up. Shows them his scars shows them his side. John's gospel says he breathed on them, the Holy Spirit. Reminded them from this time forward, whatever they forgave on earth would be forgiven in heaven and whatever they didn't forgive on earth wouldn't be forgiven in heaven. And you miss that service. Wouldn't that be terrible? to have followed Jesus for three and a half years and then missed out on his resurrection appearance to you. Well, that actually happened. The guy's name was Thomas. So can you imagine when Peter and the other disciples are telling Thomas about Jesus showing up, doors being locked, all of a sudden he just appeared. Remember what Thomas said? Unless I see with my eyes the very marks where the nails pierced his wrist. And I can put my finger in them. Wow. And. I have to see where the spear went into his side and I have to be able to run my hand in that wound. Here's what he said. I will never believe. Eight days later, Thomas is with the others and Jesus shows. Again, they're behind locked doors. He just appears. And he says, Thomas, stick your finger in here. Thomas, you want to see this? Go ahead, put your hand in it. You remember what Thomas said? 
my Lord and my God. And then Jesus looked at him and said, you wouldn't believe unless you saw. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's who Peter's writing to. He's writing to a group of believers who are what we call second generation. They did not walk with Jesus. They did not see Jesus. They did not believe in him because of firsthand information that they gathered themselves. They're believing because someone else has told them about him and they've never seen him. Kind of like us. You know, the one thing we all have in common here this morning is none of us have ever seen Jesus. I think this morning as we stand in God's presence, this is not just a message to the elect exiles who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, but it's a message for those of us who gathered this morning at Hardin Baptist Church. And for all those who gather with us online this morning. Hey, let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. We're gonna look at verses eight, nine, and then 10 through 12. Verses eight and nine are gonna serve as an introduction to our message. And then verses 10 through 12 are gonna be the body of the message. If we were to title the message this morning, it would be this, God's wonderful revelation of our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. Notice it's at the end of a paragraph. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Now, most of us right now would go to practical application, but Peter doesn't. He wants to tell us something else about this salvation we possess. These next three verses are just mind-boggling. Listen to what Scripture says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Father, before we take our seats, Dad, we just want to say thank you. For just being you. We know you have always been you and you always will be you.
Dad, we know it's because of you. We're in the family. Thank you for Peter and what he wrote. And that his letter wasn't just intended for them, it's intended for us too. And that this morning we can draw strength and encouragement. As we realize we've never seen Jesus. But yet I think we fit the description, most of us, of what Peter wrote here, Father. Dad, you know each one of us, you know our hearts, you know what we're struggling with right now. And you know we're going to try the best of our ability to focus our mind on this passage. So I'm asking you not to let me be a speaker only and do not let any of us here be hearers only, but let us be doers of your word. And we believe to do that, we must have your anointing. Not just right now, but throughout every moment of our life. So help us stay surrendered to you and open to you. Now, Father, just do what only you can do and make this happen. We don't want it to be a physical exercise. We want it to be a spiritual exercise. In your son's name, we ask for your anointing. Amen. You may be seated. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you who have never seen Jesus love him? I mean, you just can't help it. Inside you, there is this love that just overflows toward him. And you not only love him, you believe in him. Scholars tell me that when Peter puts this verb and this preposition together in the way that he puts it together, to believe in him literally takes on this meaning. To rest in him. To have all of your weight on him. You're not supporting yourself at all. I don't know if you think just for a moment. Physically that thing you go to to completely rest in. Tore all of your weights on it. None of your weights on the floor. You're not holding yourself at all. Some of you are thinking of your recliner. Some of you are thinking of the love seat, the couch. Some of you immediately went to bed and you're thinking about your bed. Can I tell you what I'm thinking about fresh off my trip from Brazil? This is one of the things I love most about Brazil. I love to get in my hedgy. That's a hammock. Now, I noticed something this year turning 62 while I was in Brazil. It was a little more difficult for me to get into my hedgy than normal. But there was just that point of hesitation to where I had part of me in, but part of me was still out. And I wanted to be all in, but I wasn't sure if I was all in. And I was really careful. To make sure when I took my last foot off the 
floor. That hedgie was going to support me. But I couldn't know it till I got all in. But I want to tell you, there was just something that came over me when I got all in. There was a rest. I wasn't holding any of me up. I wasn't counting anything in me. I was just able to lie there. Resting, trusting in my hedgie. Is Jesus your hedgie? Any part of you still on the floor? Or are you totally trusting in him, though you've not seen him, to make you right with God in your relationship? Then this letter's to you. We not only love him, we not only believe in him, we rejoice. Now this is kind of redundant, but Peter's making a point. We rejoice with joy inexpressible. If you love him and you're totally resting in him because of your relationship with him, not based on anything that's happening around you, but because of being in a right relationship with him, do you have that joy that's inexpressible? You just can't put words to it. You just can't really express it, but it's there. And you're filled with glory. Do you know why this is true? Because you're in the present tense moment of obtaining the outcome, the goal, the end of your faith. And you know what that is? The salvation of your soul. Now, I made you aware that this is concluding a paragraph. And if we keep this in context, Peter is writing about salvation from this viewpoint. Our salvation is reserved for us in heaven. And we who have this possession of salvation reserved in heaven we who possess it are being guarded by the power of God ready for this salvation to be revealed to us at the return of Christ and we rejoice because we know our faith is genuine we know our faith is real there is no doubt in our mind that we possess this faith not because we can go back to a time and a place but because God has designed our life, our particular life with trials and these trials have been designed to test our faith. Yeah. It's the picture of the goldsmith purifying gold. To purify gold, you have to liquefy it. And to liquefy it, you have to put it in a crucible and you have to apply some heat and you have to get it really, really hot. And when it's really, really hot, all those impurities rise to the top. Do you know how they say the ancient could tell when the gold was 99.9% pure? so they could look down into the gold and see the reflection of their self in the gold. 
I love that picture. Do you know why God heats up your life? Do you know why you rejoice when we go through those times of suffering? Do you know why we rejoice even when we are grieving at times? It's because we know God wants us to know that our faith is real. I believe one of the saddest things in this life would be to be in a church, be a member of a church, go to church every time the doors are open, tie to the church, read your Bible, pray to God, believe you're saved, and all of a sudden get to heaven and God say to you, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. That would be horrible. Agreed? So how do you know if your faith's real? Well, how are you doing when tests come? Does trials reveal no faith? If trials reveal no faith, there is no faith. Or do trials reveal a faith that needs some impurities taken out of it? That's the context. We are right now in the present tense moment of having our full and final salvation when Jesus returns to the earth. Not just free from the penalty of sin, not just free from the power of sin, but free from the presence of sin forever. Now, I don't know about you, but we could go to verse 13 because I'm ready for Peter to say, therefore, we love those therefores in the Bible. But he's got three more things he wants to tell us. He now wants us to examine this salvation. Look how he begins verse 10. Concerning this salvation. And then in verse 10, he's gonna tell us something. Verse 11, he's gonna tell us something. And then verse 12, he's gonna tell us something. Here's what he's gonna tell us about God's wonderful revelation of our salvation. The first thing he's gonna tell us is this. Our salvation has been prophesied. And then he's gonna tell us it's been investigated. And then he's gonna tell us it's being preached right now. So let's start with verse 10. You ready? Concerning this salvation, this salvation that he's been talking about since verse one. He's now gonna summarize everything that he said and tell us what it's totally based on and why it happened to us. And here's what he's gonna tell us. It's not a new thing, but it's an old thing. It's actually grounded in the very word of God. At this time, the word of God didn't have 66 books like our book has. At this time, the Bible is God's Old Testament, his written revelation to the nation of Israel. And here's what he said. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And then he's going to tell us what they 
are doing or did. But I want you to watch this first phrase. Our salvation was prophesied by prophets. Men who were inspired to see and write what God wanted them to see and write. Men who spoke on behalf of God. And when they spoke, yes, they were human and God was using their humanness, but their humanness was being overridden by the divine person of God. Revealing to them truth. Now I want you to watch this. When he says concerning this salvation, he doesn't say the prophets who prophesied about this salvation. Notice how he describes salvation. Prophesied about the grace that was to be ours. He defines grace by this term. uh, He defines salvation by this term. The grace. Wow. You realize this, right? Salvation is not based on work of man. Salvation is based on the grace of God. Salvation is about what God did for us. It's not about what we do for him. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know that I grew up in an evangelical Baptist church, but I believe I was misled about grace. Doesn't mean I wasn't saved at that church, I was. But I just had the picture that grace was God doing his part, putting Jesus on a cross. Then it was up to me. I don't believe that's true. I think if you read scripture and you study all the passages in scripture about salvation being by grace, you'll come to this conclusion. Grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that we can now do what he did and that's live a life that pleases him. And from start to finish, it's grace. That's why Paul could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Grace isn't God doing his part, then us doing our part. Grace is God doing all of it. Grace is God's enabling power. Can you imagine being one of those prophets and all of a sudden you start prophesying and you know there's a time coming when salvation is going to be based totally on God's grace. And listen to this. It's going to be a present possession. Look what Peter says. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was 
to you. What's the picture here? God gave you and me grace. Grace is picturing salvation. So here's what I want you to see. Salvation is a present possession. In the context here, we could be confused believing that salvation is in the future. So we should say, I hope to be saved one day. Or I will be saved one day. But yet what we learn about salvation is there's actually three tenses of salvation. So it's actually right for us to realize right now we have the present tense possession of salvation. So that I can say I have been saved. Now, when I say that, if I'm not careful, some of us will think, well, Brother Ricky, you're putting salvation in the past tense. No, I just put salvation in the perfect tense. Perfect tense means, yes, there's been a past tense activity, but when that past tense activity happened, it brought results of that activity into my present so that what happened in the past is still operating today in my present. So when I say I have been saved, I'm saying I have been saved and still am saved today and still will be saved tomorrow and still will be saved the next day. Why? Because this is a present tense salvation that I have. But there's a final aspect to it and I will not get that final aspect until Jesus Christ comes the second time. And when he comes the second time, he brings to me a glorified body just like his. But until then, I live in this body. And I live in a fallen world. So I can actually say not only I have been saved and I will be saved, I can actually say I am being saved. Now I know this bothers Baptists. And before I explain this, I just want to say, if you're at your house and somebody comes to your house and they knock on your door and they introduce themselves from being from another Baptist church and you let them into your house, be careful because they might be there to ask you about your salvation and when they ask you if you're saved, don't you dare say, well, I'm being saved because if you say that, they're going to assume you're not saved and they're going to assume you're talking about a works type of salvation and they're going to jump all over you. So I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I don't need any letters or emails from any of you online, okay? Are are you with me? I have been, still am, and always will be right in my relationship with God because it's not based on me. It's based on what God did for me on the cross. Amen? But... I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm resting in him. And he's noticing there's some things in me that look more like Adam than look like him. And he's doing a work of sanctification in my life to get everything that's not like him out of my life. Therefore, he allows my life to be tried and tested. And as my faith becomes purified, I confess and repent of all that junk in my life because I want to be like him. 
And I want to be like him because of grace. It's a present possession. Hear me say this. You have God's divine enabling in you. And we can live victorious over sin and move completely away from the image of Adam and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied about this. But watch this. That wasn't his main point. His main point was this, verse 11. You know what these prophets did? As they were prophesying about this, Peter uses two words that if we put them together, it's our English word to investigate. Have any of you ever investigated something? I mean, you just didn't accept what was being said. You checked it out. You inquired. You asked questions. That's the picture here. When these prophets started prophesying about our salvation, they struggled with it. They checked it out. I want to say, they struggled to believe it was true. So they did a careful search. Because something had to add up to them. And here's the two things they researched and searched. The who and the when. Who's going to bring this salvation to the people? What's he going to be like? What's the dynamic of his life going to be? And then the question was, when is this going to happen? Now, I can give you an example of this. One of my favorite prophetic books is the book of Daniel. Now that I understand Daniel, I love Daniel. I struggled with Daniel for years. I love those first chapters didn't like those end chapters now I like all the chapters and here's what we know from Daniel's life Daniel was an exile and we know he was gifted by God with the gift to interpret dreams remember that and he interpreted some dreams that saved some people got him elevated to a high place in the kingdom so he's a respected man as an exile in the kingdom and then all of a sudden, instead of him interpreting other people's dreams, he starts getting dreams as a prophet. But watch this. He could confidently interpret somebody else's dreams, but when he started getting the dreams himself, he struggled. And if you read the seventh chapter and the ninth chapter, here's what happens. He's saying to God, God, I don't understand it. I don't get it. And he's asking questions. And he's praying because he's just seen a vision of the Son of Man. And he's seen the circumstances of the Son of Man. He knows when the Messiah is coming, but it wasn't about on his dreams. It was about somebody else's dreams. And now he's actually getting a vision of the Son of Man who's coming. 
And he's investigating, he's thinking it through. He's trying to make it fit in his mind. And then, I think because of his investigation, he's reading another prophet, Jeremiah. And when he's reading about this other prophet, Jeremiah, he discovers that, guess what? Israel's only gonna be in captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years. And after 70 years, they're gonna be set free and they're gonna get to go back home and they're gonna rebuild their land and they're gonna build the temple. And he checks his calendar and guess what? They've been there about 66 years. So that means we're getting ready to go home. This young man's now an old man. And when he reads Jeremiah chapter 25 in his investigation, he just comes before the Lord and says, God, you gotta help me here. Am I seeing this correctly? And then God wants him to see that, yes, he's seen it correctly, but he's not seeing the full picture correctly. So all of a sudden, after his prayer, God gives him a vision that it's not 70 years, but it's 70 times seven years. Whoa. Whoa. And then he's seeing the coming of the Messiah. He's seeing a sacrifice that's going to do away with sin. He's seeing the eternal kingdom of God being set up at the end of these weeks. And he just can't wrap his mind around it. He continues to investigate. He begins to talk to God. And finally, God says, Daniel, just seal up this book. And Daniel says, got one more question. Am I going to see this? So I don't want you to think these guys just prophesied, wrote it down. No. They investigated it. They researched it. Because they struggled with it. And here's what they struggled with. The who and the when. Because here's what blew their mind. Now here's what Peter says. The spirit of Christ in them was indicating and leading them to predict two things. The suffering of Christ and Peter says this, the subsequent glory. Here's what the prophets struggled with. I get glory, but I don't understand suffering. So tell us about the one who's going to suffer, and then tell us about the one who's going to bring glory. Tell us when he's going to suffer, and then tell us when there's going to be glory. Now, here's the point Jesus suffered before he was glorified. If you're going to follow Jesus, you want glorification. You're not going to get it till you suffer. This message don't preach in America very well. But it's biblical.
If God designed our leader to suffer before glorification, how dare we expect to be glorified without suffering? Did these guys make this up? No. Peter said it was the spirit of Christ in them indicating and predicting that the Messiah would suffer. And glory follow. Wow. Can you imagine being the prophet and you pen these words in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer him by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm. Not even a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening. And roaring lion, I'm poured out like water. Oh, my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers surrounds me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And I just say in light of this, quit your belly aching. Zip it. This is who we're following. It took this to make us right with God. And God's ordained some heat in you and me to make sure our faith is real. We have to look at this next one. Isaiah 53. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that for its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I read this week of a man who was moved by this passage and so he typed out this passage, printed it off and folded it up and took it with him to work and he'd pull it out and read it. And then he began to show it to those around him. And immediately, with no Isaiah 53, no verses, being reared in a Christian community, everyone knew this is talking about Jesus. 700 years before his crucifixion, Spirit of Christ in Isaiah predicted his suffering on a cross. He happened to remember that one of his co-workers was Jewish. And he thought he ought to show it to him too. And he did. And the man, just like the Christians, recognized and said, this is your Jesus. And then the man said to the Jewish man, do you know where I got this? And the Jewish man said, yes. You got it from your Bible, the New Testament. And the man said, no. I got it from your Bible. Before glory, crucifixion. Before resurrection, death, death by crucifixion. Before ascension, death. Before return, death. Now, can you imagine being a prophet and you're looking forward to the Messiah coming to save and he's gonna die? So here's what the Jewish people began to believe. There's gonna be two messiahs. One who will suffer and one who will bring glory. We see this in the gospels. Do you remember when John the Baptist has been arrested and he sends word to Jesus and he asks through his disciples, are you he or do we look for another? Please don't ever let someone tell you John the Baptist doubted. He did not doubt. He knew Jesus was the lamb of God who was gonna take away the sin of the world. But now he's asking this question. 
Are you the one? Or will there be another? Are you the one coming to suffer? And are you the one coming in glory? Or is there a second? The Jews associated the suffering Messiah with the son of Joseph, but they associated the glorious Messiah as the son of David. Here's what we know. There's just one Messiah. But what the prophets could never wrap their mind around was one Messiah, two comings. First coming, he suffers. Second coming, glorification. We're in between the two. Which means we're in the age of suffering. It's not God being mean to you and me. It's God letting you know if your faith is real and you really possess salvation. Because if you possess salvation, it's not you depending on you, it's you depending on God and you have God's enabling power and you're transformed from a sinner to a saint. Now, last thing, verse 12. Can you imagine being a prophet Isaiah and Daniel and knowing none of this is gonna happen in your lifetime? And yet you still serve God anyway because you're not serving you, you're serving others. And that's what Peter's trying to say. These prophets still serve, but they serve for you, not themselves. And then here's what he reminds us. We've not seen Jesus. You don't have to see Jesus. But you have to hear about Jesus. And here's what he tells us. It's been announced to you. And those who preach the good news to you, they preached it by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Wow. I can't get too excited or we'll go over way too much. But are you connecting the dots? The spirit of Christ in the prophets enabled them to prophesy about our salvation. Why did we come to salvation? Because God empowered the ones who shared the message with us with the Holy Spirit sent from heaven so that when we heard it, we would believe. (laughs) Why? Because we'd been elected according to his foreknowledge. We'd been sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God for obedience and the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. Now catch this. I don't know that I'm gonna be right on this, but Peter adds this little phrase, which the angels long to look. Have you ever thought about what it'd be like to be an angel? 
If the Old Testament prophets struggle with this, what about the angels? Remember what happened when they fell? Was God graceful to them? No. Did God grant any angel repentance? No. Damn them all to eternal separation from him forever and ever and ever. So can you imagine what went through the angelic world when man sinned? And then all of a sudden this redemptive story begins to unfold. And the angels of God realize but they can't wrap their mind around it. They desire to know more. Man is saved by grace. They struggle with it. They desire to know more. I feel the same way. I stand before you and God knowing I'm saved by grace. And I have to wonder why. Why me? Why didn't I get justice? I got grace. Father, no words. Just thank you for the wonderful revelation you gave us in these three verses of our salvation. A present possession that we have, even though we're still waiting. <laughs> for the final aspect of it. And we'll get that final aspect if we see the reality of a faith that's being purified through trials. Thank you that we didn't see, but thank you that we heard. Use us now to let others hear what you did, not just for us, but for them. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org.